We are so glad that you've joined us. And we hope this message is both encouraging and challenging to you. And we want to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday gatherings. And if you need to know more information about that, you can check us out at cornerstonerockwall.com. So here's where we're at. We're still continuing in Sermon on the Mount, and we're still in Matthew 5. Um, and we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 27 through 30 today. And, you know, as we've talked about uh, leading up to this, is that part of what Jesus is doing in Sermon on the Mount, like we've, we've, we've said that, like, this is kind of Jesus's kingdom manifesto. This is Jesus's declaration of what, what it means to follow him and who he is and what this is going to look like going forward. Um, but on top of that, there's also this thing he's doing, especially in this section we're in right now, where he's calling us to kind of look below the surface of our lives, to, to kind of go beyond behavior and behind, beyond just kind of the things that you do, good or bad, but, but even start to examine motives and examine the heart more so. And that's, that's what he's been doing. That's what we talked about last week a little bit. And it's part of how, if you remember a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we talked about like this is how Jesus completes the law. That, that the law did a lot of things, right? It restrained evil. Um, it was a protective measure. It did a lot of things. But the one thing the law can't do, like a speed limit sign, like it can't change a heart. And what Jesus is going after is heart transformation. That ultimately what Jesus wants from people who would follow him would be a transformed heart, not just the ability to conform our behavior so that we kind of look like a better person, that that wasn't his main goal. His main goal is that he would come and revolutionize who we are and how we see the whole world, that we would, we would just have a new way of seeing everything around us. And it would all be through the lens of his gospel and the good news um, of who he is and what it means to follow him, right? And so we talked about that, and, and then what we... Um, what, what he is doing in the midst of this is he's kind of reorienting us to that new way. It's exactly what he's doing with his followers. The, the people who were following Jesus at the time or who were listening to his teaching, they were excited that he was Messiah, but he wasn't coming as a Messiah who was going to just conquer Rome and put Israel in charge. He was coming as a suffering servant. And that was a very different way for them of thinking. They weren't, they weren't expecting that. That wasn't the Messiah they were looking for, which is why he had so much tension with the religious leaders and with so many people who would start to follow him is that it, it just didn't... It didn't line up with what their expectations were of him. And that happens to us too, right? Like we, we live in a situation where we kind of have expectations of what we want from God or what we think God should do. Like we're all really good armchair quarterbacks for God. Like you know what you should do. Like I don't know why you would let this happen or why would you do that? And what Jesus is doing is he's reorienting us to his way. Early Christians were called followers of the way. It's the ways of Jesus that they would allow, we would align our hearts and our minds, and our actions with him, and that he would change us. And doing this feels, and this is why we titled it this way, it feels upside down. It, it always has, and it always will. It won't feel like the way that the world rolls around you. We will always, as Christians, we will always feel like we are um, swimming upstream. Like, that's just the nature of following Jesus. It will also feel upside down to kind of our own instincts, because we all have this sin nature that still resides in us, that still impacts us. We, we're all prone to selfishness, right? We're all prone to control and power. Like, those things still kind of drive us. Um, and we fight them. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know, like, okay, I want to put that to death. And I want to walk in the spirit. And I want to understand who Jesus is and what he calls for me. But there's still this kind of gravitational pull back towards selfishness and control and all those kinds of things. And so all that we're seeing in these chapters is Jesus challenging that. It's him saying, not only is this not the way you live, but you have to start examining what's under the surface of why you think that is the way you want to live. 
And so we get into topics like yesterday or last week where it was like, hey, you, th- you think not murdering someone's a good thing. What about anger? What do you do with that? How do you, how do you manage that in your own heart? Right? And we're going to be doing something similar today. So the first one, Jesus, the, the, you've heard it said, which he was talking about the law, and we talked about anger last week. Um, but he says, but I say to you, this week we're talking about the heart of lust. And Jesus is, um, one of the things I love about Scripture, and I love about Jesus, and again, like Scripture tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That Jesus is God. So if you want to know, hey, what's God like? What's the creator of the universe like? What's his personality? What's his, what does he care about? What we do is we look at the person and the work of Jesus. Because that gives us a visible image of an invisible God. It allows us to see what God's character is like, what his heart is like, what he cares about. All those kinds of things. And what I love about Jesus is he does not shy away from hard things. He never has, he never will. He, he confronts things head on. Not because he's a super confrontational guy, but because he knows. So, so if he created you, he knows what's best for you. If he created you, then he knows how you best function, how you flourish, what life should look like for you, how you can be the best version of you that he's created you to be, how you can walk in freedom and life and abundance and all those kinds of things, regardless of your circumstances, that he's designed you and to, to live a certain way. His, desires, his desire for you is that you would live that way. And so when he calls us to reconcile and wrestle through these things, it's not out of a sense of like, you're doing it wrong and I gotta tell you to do it right. It's because he knows what's best. He's a good and loving father, right? God is a good and loving father. And if he knows what's best, and if he knows how we were designed and what flourishing looks like, then man, it would make total sense that we would listen. And it's a good thing. It's an, it's an act of love that he would challenge these parts of our lives that we tend to try to avoid. We don't want to talk about. We don't want to think about. We don't talk about at dinner parties. We don't talk about in church world, Right? We avoid these things, we hide from them because they create a ton of shame. And because frankly, a lot of times, we don't want to change. We kind of like living the way we do. And the beauty of scripture and the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus confronts sin head on and then there's grace. Like he reveals to us our need for him and then he provides all that we need from him. Like, that's really good news. And so as we dive into this, I, I want to encourage you, uh, don't be afraid. Um, we're going to talk about some hard things. And then, like, if, like, we sent out an email this week, like, hey, if you got little ones, like, this may spark conversations that you weren't ready to have. So just be wise about that. Just be aware, because if Jesus is going to talk about it, we're going to talk about it. And we want to take it seriously. And the reason is, is because um, we do have a sexuality problem in our culture, right? Like we, we have a sexuality problem in ourselves and, and we have one in our culture. And, and here's the reality is that all of us, every one of us, every human being that l- is living and breathing is sexually broken. No one is exempted from that because we are all sinful. We all have sin. And so that means if sin is systemic, then sexual brokenness in some form or fashion is systemic. None of us see things perfectly. None of us have it all right. None of us have it all figured out. And that's going to look different in all of our lives. It's going it's to express itself differently. But all of us are broken because sin, sin is a systemic issue. 
Sin infects every area of our lives. We don't, we don't want to look at that. Like we, we kind of like to think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I do good stuff. It's like, but no. Like there's a sin that still, it still infects. It still it pokes. It prods. It, there's an enemy, an active enemy who's really good at his job, who is doing everything he can to kind of turn you from the Lord, to keep you in shame, to keep you in frustration, to keep you in fear, right? That stuff is still living inside of us. It's still part of, it's, it's a, uh, Paul talks about that battle between the flesh and the spirit. This is part of what it means to live in a world where Jesus Jesus' kingdom is, is here, but not fully realized yet. That Jesus has come, and he says, I'm restoring all things, but you're not going to experience the fullness of it yet. You're still going to have to battle. Like, there's a war going on for yours and my soul. And that doesn't mean, like, a war in the sense of, like, well, God, you know, Jesus wants to, or uh, the enemy's trying to take away your salvation. Like, your salvation, if you are in Christ, you are secure. You don't have to worry about that. But he absolutely wants to make you ineffective, and even if he can get your eyes fixed on anything other than Jesus, he wins. Anything else. Fixed on pornography, he wins. Fixed on yourself, on your own shame, on your own frustration, he wins. Fixated on trying not to do bad things. Like if you're fixated on, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, he wins. It's just a different form of bondage. It's not walking in freedom. It's not experiencing fullness of life. It's not experiencing life the way Jesus designed you and desired you to live. So sin has corrupted every good gift. It's what it does. It's why it leads to death. It's why life is hard. And it's not the way Jesus intended his world to be. And he is making all things new. And one day, like one day, he is going to return. And there will be no more sorrow and no more pain. And every tear will be wiped from every eye. And we will experience life, fullness of life, the way he intended us to be. But until then, we got a fight on our hands. See, sex and sexuality aren't the problem. Sin is the problem. God has, sex, sex is God's idea. Sexual desire is God's idea. Intimacy, sexual intimacy is God's idea. It's, it's a good gift to be given by a loving father. As part, but, he, but he gave it with boundaries, right? It's confined within the boundaries of an oriented within a mutual, self-giving, lifelong, covenantal relationship with someone of the opposite sex. A husband, one husband, one wife. Sex is a good gift. God is a good father. He places it within boundaries. Not because he's trying to hold out on us, but because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows what it means to live and to flourish. And we don't get to decide how this should be done. Followers of the way. Followers of the ways of Jesus. It's protective, not restrictive. So a few things. We do have a sexual identity, a sexual health a, 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 a problem both in, within ourselves because of sin and brokenness and in our culture. Here's a few stats for you. Um, and unfortunately, when you read these stats, these are uh, national American, uh, the United States. Um, the church's stats aren't much different, sadly. Four in 10 men and one in 10 women engage with porn at least once a month. What that would mean statistically is half this room engages in porn once a month. 
94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. Only 43% of teens believe porn is bad for society. 47% of families in the U.S. say pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by over 300%. Gee, I wonder why Jesus brings this up. 56% of American divorces involve an obsessive interest in pornography. Like, this is a big issue. So Jesus comes in hot with anger, and then he pivots right to this, that, that we... We have to deal with these things. We have to talk about them. We have to do everything we can to, to expose sin, to walk in freedom, to trust the Lord, to care for one another. And the good news is, is that we have a gracious and loving Father. And he's not afraid to take this stuff on. And it's funny, we were praying as a group in the, before service, and um, someone pointed out, like, the, the cool thing is in all of this is that, like, whatever your struggle is, God already knows it. Like you may have been hiding it from your spouse. You may be hiding it from your friends. You may be hiding it from your church. You may be actually just denying it yourself. It's not hidden from God. Hebrews says that everything is naked and exposed before him. And he loves you. He doesn't look at the brokenness and messiness of your struggle and go, oh, I'm out. He says, no, this is exactly why I died. This is, this is the whole game. And I'm here for you. My love is for you. And I want to see you free from everything that you've struggled with. He loves us. He's designed us to flourish. But he's designed to, us to flourish within his desires and designs. Like, it's, it's his creation. We are his creation. And he longs for us to trust him with our lives. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this passage. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and the fact that you do shoot straight with us, God. You are not afraid. And I've sat in seats hearing these kinds of messages, Lord, and I've, I've, I've sensed your tug at times in my life, and I've wrestled through my own brokenness and my own um, sin. And, and I know what that can feel like, Lord. Um, and Lord, I, I, the thing I pray is that we would have tender hearts and open ears. That wherever we are and whatever our struggle is, that we would have tender hearts and open ears. Because we these things aren't just, these are a huge deal for you. This matters more than anything. You love us, you're for us. And so I ask you, Lord, to help us by your spirit to be good listeners and to respond to you in whatever it is you're calling from us. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. So as we jump in, I want to give you a little context of first century, um, oops, I went too far, um, first century sexual ethics, because it is makes sense, like Jesus is dealing with a time and place that when he was teaching these sermons in the first century, they're very, not unsimilar to our own. So in Greco-Roman culture, um, the sexual ethics were very similar to ours um, in, in many ways, maybe a little bit beyond, and it definitely was different. It was a patriarchal society, so rules for men and rules for women were very, very different. But there were basically two main rules for sexual morals for free Roman men. One was to avoid adultery, which is sex with another married woman, that's how they would define it, um, and avoid being the passive partner in homosexuality. Everything else was open in Roman culture. And it was very normative. In many ways, more normative than we have in our culture. 
It was normative to pursue sex for pleasure with a slave or a prostitute. That was very normal in Roman culture. That was not seen as taboo in any way, shape, or form. It was, it was only um, considered adultery if the sex was with a married woman. So the idea of, a, of a, a married man having sex with a prostitute or a slave or a single person was not necessarily seen as sin or as, as a bad thing. It was culturally normative. The only breaking point was if it was a married woman that, the adultery, ha- that, that adultery was considered. But women, wives were expected to stay pure. So there was very much a double standard. Now, that's Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture. Jews lived within this Roman culture, and their, their ethics were dramatically different. You know, their, their ethics were built on Genesis 2, this idea of one flesh. And so married sex was both for pleasure and procreation among Jews. It was covenantal, right? So confines of a marriage between one man and one woman. And we, we see this in like Song of Songs, right? This, this idea that it was a good thing, it wasn't a bad thing. But, but it was designed to, to work within a covenant. A Jewish man was expected to remain pure until married. So it wasn't just the women who were expected to remain poor, pure, but men also were expected to remain pure. Um, extramarital sex in Jewish culture and homosexuality were forbidden, period. Adultery was considered the great sin. You can see that in Genesis 20. And it could even be punishable by death. In Leviticus 20, talks about that. So the Old Testament law was actually really clear. And by and large, Jewish people lived by that in a culture that very much didn't and lived differently. And it was, they were in contrast to the world around them. But this is what makes it interesting about what Jesus does here is because for Jesus, just the fact that Jews didn't do these things wasn't enough. That part of fulfilling him, him fulfilling the law was that there was more work to be done. That it was going to go beyond just the behaviors And that there was a heart issue that Jesus wanted to expose. So let's pick it up at verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. So you see there, there's this contrasting he did last week, right? You've heard it said, and he, and he, he um, pulls from the Old Testament law. This is command number seven in Exodus 20. Um, but I said you, and then he kind of, he adds himself in or, or kind of f- finishes or fills the law out. And like I mentioned, adultery was considered sexual relationships with a married person other than your spouse. That was how they defined it. That's what that word means. He says, you, you, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But, but it's interesting because even though Exodus 20, the, the Ten Commandments, it says, you know, shall not commit adultery. If you go down a few verses to, to um, Exodus twenty seventeen. Uh, the Lord, even in Exodus, is dealing with the heart issue too. It says this. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So even all the way back in that, that passage is actually quoted in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. Um, and so even back in the Old Testament, God was still, when he was dealing with Israel, when he was setting boundaries for what it was going to be like to follow him, um, he was dealing with heart issues then. Like, you, you don't covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Well, what's coveting? It's a desire for something that's not yours. It's a desire that's gone unrestrained and unrestricted. It, it's, it's, when, it's giving in to a desire that, isn't, that you're supposed to be restraining. And Jesus says, like, you shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. 
That word for looks is similar to the word for anger last week. It's a present active part of participle, which means intentional and ongoing. So, so Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you glance and then avert your eyes, it's the same thing. He's saying, if you look, if, if, if your intention in an ongoing way is to look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. That word for lust is this idea of strong desire. It's actually the same word that's used for Jesus in the Last Supper. So if you remember when Jesus gathers with his disciples, one of the first things he says is, I've, I've, I've longed for, I've desired for this gathering. It's the same word. That there's this, this longing and a deep desire. So it's not that the word isn't positive or negative. But what it points to is this, this thing under the surface inside of us. That this ongoing, desirous, like longing and leaning into lust. Maybe a better way of like kind of literally translating this would be everyone who gazes at, gazes at a woman to lust after her commits adultery in his heart. See, it's intent and it's ongoing. And it says, he says they've already committed it in their heart. And what Jesus is showing us is that the heart is the primary problem, that it's not, it's not just the behavior. In the same way that, you know, not murdering was insufficient in Jesus's way. That's a great, I'm glad you didn't murder anyone, but what about anger? And what about how you, you know, diminish and treat people around you by calling them fool or idiot or things like that? In the same way, here Jesus is saying, hey, not committing adultery is not the primary win. That there's stuff going on under the surface of your heart that we have to deal with. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. See, when we let desire go unchecked, we've already lost the battle. When, when we aren't intentional and thoughtful and aware of what's going on, Jesus is saying, you're, you're, already, you're already losing. You're already on the wrong road. Every act of adultery starts there. No one trips and falls into adultery. It all starts somewhere. And it starts with a heart issue. A heart that goes unchecked and unexamined. Where our desires, we just kind of like let them run. And that points to our first, our first point here, which is this. Is that, that what Jesus is doing, is he's exposing the heart of lust which has to do with desire and dissatisfaction. Jesus is calling us to examine desires, to say, like, what, what, what is it that you crave? And better yet, why do you crave it? Why, why do you have this pull for it? If, sexu- if sexuality is a good gift given by God and given with boundaries, why do we have this pull outside of that? What's going on in us that would cause that? So Jesus is calling us. He's saying like, hey, like, if, if you intentionally look at someone in an ongoing way where, where the desire of your heart is, that, is to lo- long for them or to wish you had them or to have images about them, like you've already lost And in this, he's also exposing this, this dissatisfaction and discontentment in us. And that's this idea of coveting, right? 
Like coveting just reveals that we want more than we have. That we aren't satisfied with who we are. We aren't satisfied with who God's given us or what God's given us. We, 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 we aren't satisfied with where we are. Like we, there's this, this root of less is, is this dissatisfaction inside of us. That I, I want more, I could have more, I, I want different, I, I don't want this, I want that, I don't want them, I want them. It's often very subtle and it's a slow erosion of our hearts and relationship, just like we talked about last week with anger. It doesn't necessarily come in and explode around you. It's this, this slow kind of like eating away. It's a slow erosion of a relationship. Ah, we've been married a lot of years and you know, you go from like passionate for one another to roommates to kind of in opposition to one another and then all of a sudden, other people and other things around you start to tug The root of lust is really about dissatisfaction. And beyond that, it, it really points to this, this, like, where are we going? Where are we going to seek love, fulfillment, and satisfaction? So I'll tell you this, like, if, if, you, if you are expecting to find satisfaction and wholeness from your spouse, they're going to let you down. You, that, that you will not find. This is why I hate so much about our culture, but like, okay, <laughs> Jerry Maguire, right? Remember that movie? Some of us do. You complete me. It's the stupidest thing you could ever say. No, she doesn't. She doesn't complete you at all. What you do when we think that way, when we think of our spouse or another person in a relationship that way, what we're doing is we're making them God in our lives. They're an idol. They're an, they're an object of worship. And then what happens is when they let us down, it's crushing. It pulls at the fabric of who we are. All of a sudden, the person or the thing, the person that was supposed to be, you're supposed to be the one who's always there for me. You're the supposed to one who's supposed to be my satisfaction. You're the one who's supposed to make me feel whole and right inside. And then, you know, they don't do the dishes. <laughs> and you're like, ah, right? The only place that we can go for true satisfaction is Jesus. A marriage flourishes, or a relationship flourishes, when we're anchored in him. Because then I don't need for my spouse what he provides for me. He is my hope. He is my salvation. He is my rest. He is my peace. And what that does, it frees my heart to not have these expectations of another person. It allows me to love them freely and fully with all that I can, even when they don't reciprocate, even when they're having a bad week, even when they're not in the mood. And so much of marriage and relationships has become about like quid pro quo, like I will as long as you. Like marriage is 50-50. No, it's not. It's 100-100. It's I'm all in for you even when you don't reciprocate. And you're all in for me even when I don't reciprocate. And when a relationship operates that way, there's no safer place. Because you don't have to pretend. You don't have to like, oh, I gotta figure out how to like make sure I take care of them and do, you know, I need to do that stuff. You can look at the other person and be like, hey, 
I maybe got 30% today. <laughs> You're going to have to cover the rest. And they're like, I got you. I love you. I'm for you. That's okay. There's grace. See, the, 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 a lot of the challenges in this stuff is that what we've done, both culturally and unfortunately even in the churches, we've made sexuality or sexual identity kind of, the, or sexuality the source of our identity. Like we've made it the place. And, and in culture, you see it as kind of obvious, right? Like um, it, it, it be, has become the thing that def- defines worth and value. And so it's like, well, I feel this and that's how I feel worth. And so if that's how I feel and that's where I find worth, then I'm gonna put all of my energy there. Like that's, that means that's, that's who I am. That I'm defined by what I feel. Which would be great except for the fact that feelings really aren't all that trustworthy. I don't know about you, I feel a lot of things. Doesn't mean that they're trustworthy. Doesn't mean I should act on them. We live in a culture where what you desire and what you feel will determine your identity and will drive the way you live. And that can't always be trusted. Scripture teaches us the value, our value, our identity, our worth comes from being image bearers of God and in Christ. That's where that comes from. That that's where our anchor is. That my, the full value of me as a human being comes that, that God has created me in his image, that he loves me and is for me, and that in Christ I am whole. And the more I can anchor myself there, the more it frees me from letting all of these other things become things that I chase for my value and my hope and my peace. And they never, they never actually satisfy. And Jesus is calling us, even in the simple one, two verses, right? He's calling us to examine our desires, to get under the surface to our heart. Expose those root issues inside of us and allow us an opportunity to own them and confess and repent. To, be, to go beyond just the what we might or might not do to the why. Why am I dissatisfied? Why don't I have peace? Why do I run to pornography when I'm stressed? Why, you know, why is my, my relationship with my spouse feel so fractured or tense? Like, why aren't we of one? Like, why aren't we united in these things? Why aren't we connecting? 2 Corinthians 10, 5, Paul says, take every thought captive and submit it to Christ. I think it's feelings too. I think that's fair. That, that we take, that everything that we are filtering filters through the lens of like, how does this align with scripture? And is this, is this who Jesus has made me to be and what he desires for me? And it's us digging beyond behavior and, and, and that desire like we've talked about that for heart change, for transformation. Again, it's really good that we don't commit adultery. That's a good thing. But that's not the ultimate win in Jesus' book. He wants hearts that are completely revolutionized. An affection that is so for him that that we we would love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then as we love Jesus with everything that we have, you know what happens? We love our wives and our husbands really, really well. Because I now no longer need them to be a savior for me. I no longer need them to be my source of peace and hope and rest. Jesus can do that. And then I'm free. I'm free to love and care for them. So that's the first half. But then what Jesus does is, in addition to this heart examination, he does give us very practical ways to protect ourselves. And so let's keep going. Verse 29. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Okay, clearly Jesus is using hyperbole here. (laughs) He's not telling us to go cut off body parts. But what he is telling us, he's painting a picture of how serious and how dangerous lust is. And how desire unchecked is like a spark to a raging brush fire. And he's saying that it's, it's important that we are aggressive and proactive and self-protective. Colossians 3, Paul says, put sin to death. So how does Jesus, he says, hey, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And so like, notice what he's doing. He says eyes. So we, the first two verses talks about the heart. We talk about eyes and we talk about hands. Like do the, do the, do the math there. Like heart, right? I got to deal with my heart. Eyes, lust is visual in many ways, most ways, not always, but, and then hands, how I act, like what I do. And so you see like starts with the heart. And there's a protection of the eye, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Our eyes can be a catalyst specifically in the area of lust and desire. And you see this actually as a theme in scripture. So in Genesis, think about Genesis 3, it says that Eve, and they're very specific in the Hebrew words, Eve saw the fruit, she desired it, and then she took it. When David and Bathsheba, David saw her, desired her, and took her. See a pattern? And what does Jesus do? He says, like, deal with the heart, desires, and if your eye is an issue, pop it out. If your hand's an issue, pop it off. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He, here's the reality. I think a couple things Jesus is trying to tell us here. One, if I was walking around and one of my eyes was missing, one of my hands was missing, and you guys were like, dude, what happened? <laughs> You're gonna notice like, that's going to stand out a little bit. And I'll be like, well, so funny thing happened, right? And I think here's part of why I think this is valuable for us is that we really want to look put together. We really want to look like, yeah, I'm good. I got no problems. Everything's going great. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm not struggling with anything, right? So we put up a face. We put up a facade. None of us want to walk around looking maimed. None of us want to walk around with an eye gone and an arm missing. And it seems like part of what Jesus is telling us is that it is better to be visibly broken than to be given over to your sin. It is better for us to be missing limbs than to allow ourselves to be perpetually given over to our sin over and over and over again. I mean, that's humility. And so willing to say, yeah, like I would, like here's a great illustration for it. Um, why do you have a flip phone? Because I can't be trusted with a smartphone. Because smartphones make me dumb. Right? That's, this is a, that, that would be a modern equivalent to the idea of like, hey, gouge out your eye. Cut off your arm. Dude, you have a, a Motorola flip phone? That's weird. Yeah, here's why. None of us want to admit that. None of us want to walk in that kind of humility. But it's better for that Jesus says, then for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The word for hell, and this passage kind of gets funky 
And there's a lot of thoughts around it. But that word that we translate hell there is the word for Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is actually a transliteration, basically, of the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is a valley outside of Jerusalem, or outside of the the old city of Jerusalem. And where Ben-Hinnom was is where Israel, in 2 Kings 17, uh, sacrificed their children to a false god, Moloch. And this, this moment in Scripture is really like, it's kind of a, I don't want to say a pivot point because Israel's always been challenging the Lord. But it's a big deal. And it became a huge source of shame for Israel. That, that, they, that they got to that point that they actually began sacrificing children in a valley. And so that area, that valley became a trash dump with a fire that burned perpetually. And you throw your trash off the hillside and it burned it. And Jesus uses it multiple times in the New Testament in his teaching. And it's used as an image of separation from the Lord and, 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 and a picture of, of, of what hell is like or a picture of what that separation and that torture looks like. But, but I don't think what he's trying to say is if you do these things, you're going to hell. He says you're in the danger of the fires of hell. He says like you're dancing on the line. You're, you're dancing in dangerous territory. You, you have to understand what's at stake here. It's so important that we understand that. Like Jesus is saying, hey, popping on your internet at 1030 at night when everyone's gone to bed may not seem like a big deal to you. And you might be willing to say like, oh, who's it, who's it, you know, who's it hurting? It's not hurting anyone, it's just me. Jesus is saying, it's a huge deal. And it's far more corrosive to your heart and to your relationships than you would, could even fathom and you're dancing in really, really dangerous areas. And you'd be better off without an eye and without a hand. That that's a better solution than to allow yourself to continue to walk down this path and down this road. Which is our second point, that Jesus is really calling us and challenging us to protect the heart from less. And it's a picture of radical repentance so I grew up in Southern California, and where I grew up in the west end of the San Fernando Valley, which um, surrounded by hills and mountains, and this time of year, September, August, September, October, um, it's brush fire season. Like, those of us from California remember brush fire season. I see you nodding over there, yep. And so it's, you know, it's like fall, but different. Because um, <laughs> it gets windy, and when it gets windy, fires get sparked because of multiple, multiple reasons. But it, when you grow up in Southern California, and the church I was at actually was on a hill that was surrounded by dry brush. And so what they do is the, the, um, the, the state and the city compel you to do fire clearance, to do brush clearance. Because, and if they don't, if you don't do it, they'll come and do it and then they'll bill you for it. Which is, they, trust me, they overcharge. Um, but here's, here's what I mean by this. For fire to flourish, it needs two things. Oxygen and fuel. And so what the government wanted us to do was, hey, start, start, make sure you eliminate as much fuel around the perimeter as you can. Because then that, it creates a fire break. It allows us to protect the structures. And in many ways, what Jesus is saying here is, hey, like temptation is everywhere. Sin is crouching at your door. Like you can't turn around 
in our society today and not potentially experience something that could trigger a thought of lust or the desire for something that's not yours, right? Like it's everywhere. And in the same way that you, we had to build a fire break around the church so that in case there's a brush fire, they can manage it. It's the same thing in our hearts. That in a highly sexualized culture, we need to build in protections. We need to protect ourselves. We need to protect our spouses. We need to protect our hearts. Temptation is everywhere, but just remember this. Temptation is not sin. You have to remember that. Like, this is really important because I think this gets conflated in, in, for many of us. Temptation is not sin, necessarily. Jesus was tempted and did not sin, right? Temptation is temptation, Giving in to temptation is sin. You live in a world, you and I live in a world, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better, where temptation is going to be everywhere. It is constantly around us. It barrages us on TVs. It barrages us on the internet. But even beyond that, I have a heart that's prone to wander. I have a heart that desires things that it shouldn't desire. And so we have to be willing to protect, to protect ourselves, to protect those around us. Jesus is calling us both to examine our hearts and cut off the fuel. Whatever that takes. It's a willingness to do what it takes to protect ourselves and our family. And so each of us have to decide, like, what does that look like for me to cut off and to gouge out. The first thing it means, it, be, it means coming clean about temptation. It means saying, hey, I, I'm struggling with this. I, I don't know what to do. I'm struggling. It may mean accountability. I mean, it doesn't may mean. I can say this. It means accountability software. It means having people in your corner who help protect you. It may mean a flip, flip phone. It'd be cool to start a flip phone revolution. Let's do it. Right? Let's just be the church of the flip phone. That's great. Texting's going to stink. But just anyways... Well, let's remember three buttons and you have to, anyways. I went through a season. Um, pornography is part of my past, part of my childhood. And so there was a long season in our marriage where if Stacy wasn't home or was going to bed, I wasn't allowed to have a computer around me by myself. I don't want to admit that that's how I, where I was at, but I couldn't be trusted. I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't in a space where I was going to be healthy. It was too much of a temptation. And God needed to do some stuff in me before I could have you know, be safe in that way. It's a willingness to do whatever it takes. It's, it's a willingness to move towards radical repentance. There's a difference between feeling bad and repentance. The rich young ruler felt bad and went away sad. He didn't repent. Second Corinthians 7 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and, leads, and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Feeling bad isn't repentance. Repentance is turning from. Repentance is putting to death. Repentance is, I've been going this way. I've been trying to manage it on my own. It isn't working. I need a new pathway. I need a new way forward. It's a radical repentance. It's about being honest about our struggles and bringing them into the light because that's where they lose their power. Jesus has not called us to manage sin. He's called us to put it to death. Let's say that one more time. Jesus has not called us to manage sin. He has called us to put it to death. 
And when you start playing with fire, you get burned. And when you're like, no, I got it. I know, I feel bad. I'm not going to do it again. You've already lost. You're already on the way down. But he hasn't left us on our own. Jesus hasn't said, hey, this is what it looks like to follow me. Good luck. Second Peter tells us that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. That we're not lacking. He's given us his very presence. He's given us the grace and the, the cross, right? Like he's given us everything we need. He's given us a new life and a new identity in Christ. We're not alone. He's given us a community of believers who, who we can walk with and wrestle with and, and, and be honest with. And they can be like, yeah, like I got your back. Sexual desire is a gift from God. It's not to be feared. It's not to be suppressed. It's a gift to be cherished and stewarded as God's designed it to. None of the people I know that had affairs that were Christians didn't know that adultery was a sin. None of them. None of the people that I've counseled who have struggled with pornography didn't know that it was wrong. The issue isn't theological most of the time. And the real issue isn't honestly, sometimes it oftentimes isn't sexual temptation. The issue is pride. It's that we don't want to admit that we need help. We don't want to admit that we're broken. We don't want to admit that we struggle to control ourselves. We just don't want to admit it. And that's called pride. And that's what's killing us. It's the issue. And so as we wrap up, like coming to Jesus humbly, right? right at the beginning of the of Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, that we would come to him with humility, that we would share our struggles with him, that we would admit the problem, that we would examine our hearts. Psalm 139, search my heart, O God, test me and know my thoughts. See if there's anything offensive in me that we would let the Lord expose these things in us, that we wouldn't run from them, that we wouldn't hide from them, that we wouldn't try and prove ourselves to them, that we would just come before him and say, I don't know what to do. I'm a mess. I need your help. That we would be humble with one another. So humble with the Lord, humble with one another, that we would share our struggles and get help and stop trying to manage it on our own. That we really would have be, live lives of radical repentance. That we would turn from it and we would cut off the fuel supply whatever that takes. That we would live out rhythms of confession and repentance. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That the way we get out of habitual sin isn't just self-discipline. It's often through confession. It's through owning it, humbling ourselves. Lord, I need your help. Friend, I need your help. Spouse, I need your help. Like, this isn't who God's designed me to be. It's crushing me, and I'm over it. I don't want to live this way anymore, and I can't do this on my own. And third, we need to be humble and trust that Jesus' grace is sufficient, and that even in my brokenness, and even in my sin, and even in my failure, he can shine. Like, that he isn't blown, like, Jesus isn't glorified just in when I get it right. He's often more glorified when I get it wrong. And I come to him and I'm like here's, like, here's what I need. I need grace. When I let my scars tell my story of how he is redeeming and restoring me and bringing me hope, that's the good news. The good news is that your sin doesn't have to define you. 
Your sin has an impact. Our lust, our cultural lust, our personal lust, like these, they have an impact on us, but they don't have to define us. And Jesus longs for us to come to him and to lay our sin and our brokenness at the foot of the cross. It's why he gave up his life. The band's gonna come forward, and as they do, I'm gonna tell you a story. And you'll know the story if you've been around church for any line, any amount of time. There's a guy named King David. King David is a man after God's own heart. That's what scripture calls him. He's the king of Israel. The Lord anointed him and placed him in place. And there was a time in King David's ministry or his life when he was supposed to be out at war and he decided to stay home and went out on his veranda in the city of David and he looked down and he saw a woman bathing on a roof. And he desired her. He took her, sent his guys, brought her to him and he slept with her. And she became pregnant, which that creates a problem because she was married to a guy named Uriah Uriah was um, a faithful servant of the king. And so he's like, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. So he tried to get Uriah to come back from war and sleep with his wife so he could be like, eh, nothing happened here. Didn't work. So he had Uriah killed. And then he married Bathsheba. And this displeased the Lord. Understatement of the year. Right? And David wrestled with this, and he had many consequences from this. You can read, if you read through his story, like this is the pivot point of his life. Like turmoil. His own son tries to oust him. Like from there on, it's really, really difficult. The child dies. The Lord takes the life of the child. And this is what uh, Psalm 32 is David's confession. This is how David finally reconciles with the Lord in this. He says this, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. That's what he says. When I, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David isn't called a man after God's own heart because he got it right. David is called a man after God's own heart because of where he went when he got it wrong. That his faith was in a God who was gracious and loving and forgiving. And he wrestled with it, and he tried to manage it, and it didn't work. And he finally confessed. And I feel like that when I say things like, when I read David's words, he says, like, your hand was heavy upon me. I get the sense there's probably some of us in the room that feel that. You know that feeling. Like, ah, his hand is heavy on me. Because you've been carrying around guilt and shame and frustration and hurt for maybe years. And the same God who brought grace and mercy to David offers you grace and mercy today. And there's hope. And it's because of this. Because Jesus came, God himself in the flesh, and laid himself down, laid down his life, became a sacrificial lamb, so that we could have life. So that sin no longer defined us. 
It, it no longer has to determine our future or our pathway. I know it's a hard topic. I know it does. It creates a lot of pain, shame, fear. But don't forget that when God reveals sin in our lives, it's a good thing, not a bad thing. That's an act of a gracious and loving father who wants more for you. He is not satisfied with you being a, quote, good person. He wants your whole heart. He wants to transform you. He wants you to be a new creation because he's already said you are. He wants you to live out what he's already declared you to be so that you might be salt and light. That we might be a people who are salt and light. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a time of kind of um, repentance. And we're going to do something that's kind of not cornerstone-y. Cornerstone um, and we're going to open up the front of the room here for confession, for you to come up and do top business with the Lord. And, and I really wrestled through this because our, our compulsion is to be like, ah, just think about it in your head and talk to the Lord and you're good. But like radical repentance is, is making a decision to turn from. There's an activity to it. And there's a willingness and a boldness that comes with it to say like, I, I'm, I'm, I can't keep going the way I'm going. I can't keep living the way I'm living. The, like sin has got its hooks in me and I, I need to break free of that. And again, Jesus already knows the depth of your sin and your struggle and he loves you and he doesn't condemn you and he's calling you towards himself. There's nothing that Jesus can't bring healing and hope to. Like I can tell you, I've seen marriages restored in the midst of deep struggles with pornography, my own. I've seen couples walk through adultery and be restored and flourish in their marriages. I've seen it, I've actually seen it. It's hard work, it's not easy, but Jesus does amazing things if we'll let him. And so here's what we're going to do. They're going to lead us in a song. And again, this is just a chance for you to do business with the Lord. And so this space is open to come up. And for some of us, look like maybe your lust, your struggle with lust isn't like sexual lust. But we all have areas of sin in our lives. You can lust after stuff. You can lust after control. Like some of us, some of y'all need to cut off your Amazon. You know what I mean? Like, like just the desire for things. Like that is a lust. That is an unhindered desire. And it may be robbing you of relationship with Jesus and hindering relationship with others. And so we're gonna take a time and we're gonna confess that to the Lord. And I've asked a few people that we, that we are leaders in the church that if, if you come forward, they're, they're, some of our people just wanna come over and pray over you. You don't have to share the story. You don't have to tell them what's going on. That's, that's between you and Jesus at this point. But we have people who are just gonna pray over you. And we're going to take some time and we're going to worship. And we're going to remember that God's grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness. And that there is nothing that you are walking through today that he cannot bring healing and hope to. Because he is a good and a loving God. So let's pray and then we'll spend some time responding to him. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. And it's kind of, it's cool to see it up here, God. We don't have it on the stage all the time. And yet, it is the reminder you've given us of your sacrifice for our sin. It is a reminder of um, a couple things. One, it does remind us of our brokenness and our messiness. 
but it also is a beautiful picture of your grace that you would lay out your life so that we might be set free. So I ask, Lord, in this time that you would do a work inside of us and that as we sing this song, Lord, that you would give us boldness to repent where we need to repent. Lord, that we wouldn't try and pretend and and kind of stay within ourselves and look like we have it together while our hearts are being crushed. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here who your hand is heavy on, that they would come forward and they would experience freedom. Thank you that your grace is sufficient and your power is made perfect in weakness and that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And we take this time now to worship you and to remember who you are. In your son's name, amen.